This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. Among our staff and our supporters, immigration is never far from our minds. And that hasn't been the case only in the last two years since Donald Trump took office. Immigrants' rights has been a priority for the ACLU of Pennsylvania since at least 2006, when the city of Hazleton in Luzerne County took it upon themselves to enforce federal immigration law. And we beat the city in court. We've also fought back against never-ending attempts by xenophobes in the state legislature, led by Representative Daryl Metcalf, who have tried to regulate immigration at the state level. With the exception of one narrow e-verify mandate for state contractors, we've defeated every bill they've put forward. We've been a part of convincing Ben Salem Township in Bucks County to not enter into an official agreement with federal immigration authorities. And we've successfully freed people who were unfairly detained. And the we here is collective. The ACLU of Pennsylvania is proud of the role we've played, but this work has happened in coalition with effective, strong organizations doing the work across the state many of them closer to the communities that are directly impacted than the ACLU is. There are too many to name, but they include the Pennsylvania Immigration and Citizenship Coalition, Juntos, Make the Road, Casa San Jose, Church World Service, Hias, Casa, and Community Legal Services. One of my favorite working relationships has been with MILPA, the Movement of Immigrant Leaders in Pennsylvania. For this episode, I sat down with Desi Burnett, Milpa's statewide coordinator. In this conversation, Desi talks about how Milpa grew out of the effort to remove restrictions to driver's licenses based on immigration status and the effective positive relationships that Milpa members have built with law enforcement. She also notes very pointedly that what ICE does is not policing. Then we'll hear from Golnas Fakimi, immigrants' rights attorney here at the ACLU of PA. Golnas tells us about a new lawsuit we filed against a judge in Cumberland County who called ICE on a couple's wedding day and about the work we've been doing to push the Pennsylvania State Police to limit troopers from taking it upon themselves to enforce federal immigration law, work that we've done in coalition with MILPA. First, let's hear from Desi Burnett. Here we go. Well, Desi, thanks for taking the time to talk. I really appreciate the chance to sit down and chat about your work. And let's just, to give folks context, let's just talk about what is MILPA? What's your mission and what does your work look like? Uh, MILPA is a network, uh, we're a statewide network here in Pennsylvania of families who are fighting for the dignity and rights of every person, regardless of immigration status. So we, um, we do education, we do organizing, and we kind of cultivate the participation of folks in our, in our communities for social, economic, and political changes for human rights. And my understanding, having watched it to some degree firsthand, is that MILPA grew out of a particular campaign, which was the effort to lift the current restrictions on driver's licenses for people based on their immigration status. Right now in Pennsylvania, if you do not have immigration status, you cannot get a driver's license. How did working on that one particular issue grow into an organization that's now taking on a broader range of issues? Um, Before 2002, folks in Pennsylvania were able to get a driver's license using a tax ID number. Just a little background on the issue. And um, it was between 1992 and 2002 where folks could could do that. And then in um, 
2009, the state went back and retroactively canceled thousands of people's licenses here in Pennsylvania who had gotten them legally um, with their tax ID number. And that's really where uh, Milpa really grew out of this fight for driver's licenses, which began at that moment. And so in 2009, um, based out of Philadelphia, there were families who were fighting to keep their driver's licenses. We did a number of things in the courts with the ACLU, where some folks were able to keep their licenses. And right around, um, it was around 2012, after we kind of like hit a bunch of walls in terms of like, how, how do we really, you know, how do, how do we get everyone their, these, this right back? We decided that we needed to change the law. And so in 2013, we um, sat down and we wrote a bill and um, was one of the main things that one of the biggest things that we did. We wrote a bill. We found someone to introduce it. And we, we really saw that as a platform to start to connect with communities across the state. We knew that if we were going to change the law, that we couldn't do it from one location in Pennsylvania, but we had to really build a statewide network of people who were impacted. That's really where um, the fight for driver's license really kind of began and flourished in a way. And um, we connected with um, communities in Harrisburg, in Gettysburg, Biglerville, Hanover, Chambersburg, uh, Mount Joy, Westchester, and Easton, and began um, in Delaware County and started really forming committees out of that. And so that really is how MIPA began, was communities and coming together um, on our own, essentially trying to figure out how are we going to build power for in a voice for people across the state who right now or in that period really didn't have somebody standing up and saying, you know, that folks have a, have rights, even undocumented people. And so um, that's how we began. And then around 2015, you know, as we started forming and building committees, like it, uh, for obvious reasons, we just started seeing that like our, we were kind of dealing with a lot of crises in mm-hmm. our community. Our community is not, you know, people in the state of Pennsylvania are dealing with a lot of issues, um, not just the, the you know, need for a driver's license. So things like, you know, people, we were dealing with the deportation and detention, deportation crises, housing crises, people needing support in a lot of different areas. So that is when uh, we changed our name to Milpa, the Movement of Immigrant Leaders in Pennsylvania. And um, we really started kind of adopting a broader human rights platform and, and mission. So I want to ask you a little bit about the driver's license issue. Um, it just seems like one of those things that's so practical. If people are driving, they should have licenses. Um, can you talk a little bit about why lifting that restriction on driver's licenses is so important for the people you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we study in Milpa is the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And uh, one of the articles um, of that talks about the freedom of movement. And when you really just stop and think about what a fundamental um, right and what a fundamental thing it is to be able to go where you need to go, go where you want to go, that's just something we reflect on in Milpa. And so having a driver's license, you know, uh, fundamentally really is about the freedom of movement to that everyone should have. And some people do have and other people's people don't, you know, sometimes in our presentations, we ask people to reflect on that, you know, yeah. like who in this room is able to basically go wherever you want in the world if you, if you wanted, you know, yeah. and who is not and why. Um, so I think, you know, that's kind of the foundation of what we're really fighting for. And a driver's license, you know, and your everyday life really gives you access to other basic uh, human rights, like mm-hmm. the ability to get to work, 
the ability to take yourself or your children to the hospital to get into a hospital sometimes um, or to a doctor's appointment. Uh, Many people need a form of ID to get into their child's school. Um, We have members who've, you know, haven't been able to access um, financial aid or um, access to higher education because of a lack of identification or driver's license. You know, another just main part of our fight is just people being able to feel safe and secure when they're driving on the roads or whenever they need to identify themselves, not feeling like they're going to end up in a situation where they may be detained and deported um, because they don't have a driver's license or an ID. So let's talk a little bit about how law enforcement is interacting with immigrant communities and with people of color. Uh, This is an issue that seems like it's always been present for as long as we've worked on immigrants' rights, but it has particularly amped up the last two years. Uh, Last spring, ProPublica and the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that some Pennsylvania State Police troopers have seems to be taking it upon themselves to investigate immigration status of people they encounter, which is often in um, in vehicle stops, but sometimes even just on the street. And there have been stories of troopers detaining people for hours at a time while they wait for ICE officers to show up. And at the same time, um, since tr- President Trump took office, uh, ICE's Philadelphia office has arrested more people who do not have a criminal conviction than any other field office in the country. Now, my understanding is that uh, Milpa has been working with families who have been affected by this behavior. What can you tell us about what you've been hearing from the people you work with? Well, you know, we want to start by saying that we in this work, particularly in the organizing we've done around trying to um, change the law to allow folks to get a driver's license, we've had the the benefit of interacting and getting to know a lot of law enforcement who really understand understand uh, what public that public safety means public safety for everybody mm-hmm. and we've had the you know honor of being able to to get to work with a lot of police officers in our and departments in our communities who really you know are not trying to make to set up a situation where people feel unsafe mm-hmm. with the police and want there to be trust and so you know we appreciate that and want to acknowledge that and um in, you know, what we were receiving were lots of reports of people on the, um, you know, on the highways and mostly in central Pennsylvania that were kind of experiencing a number of things. One, um, getting pulled over by certain people in the, in the state police, getting pulled over for seemingly like no reason. Um, so people definitely thought that there was some racial profiling going on, seeing somebody who's Hispano or, you know, might be an immigrant and pulling them over. Two, we were getting a lot of reports of people being questioned about their immigration status. And um, we were getting reports of people then um, having the the state police call immigration on them and holding them for two, three, four hours while immigration came to take them. Um, And we were also getting uh, reports of people who, during their work, maybe in a work van or a work truck, would be pulled over and often by the same officer in multiple, like within the span of one month or a week, and that the um, folks who were Latinos in the car would get questioned and ID'd and eventually um, taken to York while the driver would, would not. And so those were some of the things that we were hearing. And and overall, there was just um, just a sense that the state police was not people, our community's friends. And 
And so that is when we really linked up with the ACLU on this issue, actually. And um, we began with the permission of folks who were reporting this to us, reporting these cases to the ACLU. And the ACLU um, really led the effort of getting not just our group, but other groups on the ground kind of in conversation about what could be done and how could we, you know, how can we stop this? And so that's really, you know, that's kind of how we got involved with the this this um, issue. I'm glad you mentioned about law enforcement you've worked with who want to have positive relationship don't want to be mistrusted because the behavior you described then creates a chilling effect. Um, the Scheller Center at Temple University recently, re- recently released a report that was based on survey data showing that in at least 13 counties in Pennsylvania, um, there have been ICE officers in courthouses or court personnel um, reporting to ICE. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little more about the chilling effect that has. Yeah, we haven't had, we personally as Milpa, we have not gotten any cases of the, in terms of people getting um, in, you know, approached in courts, but just in, in terms of, you know, the behavior we were seeing, for example, from certain officers with the state police, what ends up happening then is our, you know, our folks can't trust any police, you know, you never know. It's a situation where people, you know, don't know if the person who's pulling them over is going to call ice on them and have them separated from their children or if this person is not going to do that and actually respects them and and is going to cite them for whatever they did and then let them go home to their family and when you don't have a, a trust you know with the police it's i mean i think there's just a there's a ripple effect in terms of of safety for for people people don't want to call the police if they've been victims if they've been witnesses to anything that's happened um and it just kind of disintegrates the community in a lot of ways because, you know, everyone's part of the same community. But if there's a distrust there, then, you know, it, it just it, it pulls that apart. The other thing I will say for us is I think the other just really important thing is our children in our communities and what they are learning from what's happening. And Milpa did a, you know, we did a survey some years ago with 300 of people across the state. And... Of those folks, nearly 70% of folks who we surveyed said that their children fear losing a parent mm-hmm. while they're driving without a license. And so that's one thing that always sticks with us of like, you know, what effect is this really having on the children in our communities? What are they seeing? How are they experiencing all of this? And what impact is it having on their their sense of safety and security in their in their community? And so that's a really important piece for us. Yeah. So you talked about the the ACLU and MILPA and some other groups worked in coalition, and we approached uh, the Wolf administration and the state police to restrict uh, its interactions with ICE. That work has had some payoff. There's a new policy where, where no policy existed before. Um, the policy forbids questioning passengers and vehicles. It also forbids holding people beyond the time that they would have been held otherwise solely for the purpose of investigating their immigration status. But MILPA and the ACLU and our allies do have concerns that the policy doesn't go far enough and may not even stop racial profiling by some state police troopers. So can you explain your concerns about the new policy and why you think it's not strong enough? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, the the coalition of groups that you mentioned, I think the places where we were, where we were able to really 
kind of push on this policy. I, I would say overall, the benefit of having a policy of this policy is that the places where the state police were, where there were practices that were not in line with the constitution, their policy is now in line with the constitution. Mm-hmm. And it's a really important piece for us to understand because a, a lot of folks don't, don't understand that regardless of your immigration status, you are, the laws apply to you equally that you are covered by the Constitution and the laws in the Constitution, regardless of your immigration status. So if you are in a situation where the police are detaining you for no reason for two, three, four hours, that is unconstitutional under the Fourth Amendment. If you are being racially profiled, if you're being stopped and detained for no reason other than your race or your immigration status, that is discrimination and that's unconstitutional. And so it's really important for us to understand that in the, you know, some of these places in the, in the, the policy where I think the state police, you know, are getting in line with the constitution, we are very in favor of that. And that, you know, we understand that, that people were covered by the, by the constitution before this policy and that. So that's really important for us to understand. And I think the biggest place that we still have to move and, and we have to continue talking with the state police and with the governor's office and pushing is just this connection and collaboration with ICE. And for us, ICE as a law enforcement agent or as an agency is a very distinct from our local police and our Mm -hmm. state police. Um, The mission of ICE, um, the role of ICE is to remove people indiscriminately from our communities, from, um, from our families, from our congregations, from our workplaces. And um, that is not the same mission as our local police and our local, our, our state police. Mm-hmm. That is not policing. That's not moving us in, in a direction of, of either, you know, restorative justice or any kind of justice in, in any sense. Um, so it's really important that we begin to understand that because over the years, there's kind of been this, this way where those things are getting kind of like um, conflated and they're not. They're two completely separate things. You know, that's a really important thing for us to kind of communicate and understand and people to understand. And so on that sense, this policy, it really, you know, it really doesn't make that kind of distinction between ICE and and state policing. Um, And I think that's the place that we want to continue to fight to push to ensure that the state police are not um, conflating somebody's immigration status with any any kind of policing that they need to do, that there's not information sharing, that there's not um, any, you know, that people are not able, a police officer is not able to just call ICE and see if this person is undocumented for, mm-hmm. you know, for why. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's kind of more of where we, we think we want to keep working and dialoguing and, and pushing to the, the state police to, to move. So I'm always curious about my friends and their advocacy backgrounds, and I'm embarrassed to admit that we've known each other for years, and I don't know your story. How, how did you end up doing this work? Why, why do you do it? I never really started in terms of doing this work as like a quote-unquote immigrant rights, mm-hmm. um, that my background in organizing is around um, building a movement to end poverty led mm-hmm. by the poor united across color lines. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, my background in this is really how do we build a, a large movement of people impacted by inequality, essentially? How do we all come together? Because, um, you know, what's happening in our country now, I think that's really clear, is that, you know, there's a way that the politics is kind of 
just dividing people out into mm-hmm. their different communities and their different silos. So that's really my background is working with in in terms of human rights and how do we bring people together? Um, how do we bring communities together? And my community, I'm Mexican American, you know, I'm Mexican American, and um, this was a you know an issue that impacted my community that I just kind of kept moving with, you know, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, you know, I think the other piece for me is I was raised Catholic and Christian. And I think that as I became an adult, I really just began to see a lot of how our the world is, is there's just big contradictions with how I was kind of raised to understand, like, how we should be with each other as people what fairness look like, looks like and um and like what our future looks like too you know what kind of future we have so that's been just a really big part of my you know my kind of work and what i do yeah mm-hmm. that's great yeah so um if people want to learn more about milpa where can they go for more information our website is uh, milpafamilia.org uh, so m i l p a f a m I am not going to get it right. <laughs> Milpafamilia.org. Yeah, that's our website. And then we're on uh, Facebook also as Movimiento Inmigrantes Líderes in Pennsylvania. It's in Spanish. Yeah. All right. Great, yeah. Desi. Well, thank you for yeah. the time. And yeah. it's a it's a privilege to get to work with you. I really appreciate everything you do. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for your support over all these years. Thank you to Desi Burnett for taking the time to talk. You can learn more about Milpa at milpafamilia.org. We'll include a link in the show notes. Golnaz Fakimi is the immigrants' rights attorney at the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Golnaz was on the podcast back in episode five when she talked about the case of Ivan Nunez Martinez, a gay man who has lived in the United States for 18 years and who was unfairly detained by ICE last year. Thanks to Golnaz's work and the work of the entire legal team, Ivan is free today. In this conversation, Golnaz explains the legal problems with local and state officials trying to enforce federal immigration law. Let's hear from Golnaz Fakimi. Well, Golnaz, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And let's start with the lawsuit we filed in February. A judge in Cumberland County called federal immigration officers when a couple came before her to be married. What happened? Well, so the couple are Alex Parker and um, Krisha Schmick. That that was her maiden name at the time. Uh, Alex was born in Guatemala. He's Latino, dark-skinned. Um, he's lived almost all of his life in the U.S. He came to the U.S. as a baby based on a prospective adoption by an American family. And from the time that he got to the U.S. as a baby straight through to now, he's always been a lawful permanent resident. Krisha is Caucasian and she's um, a U.S. citizen. You know, they fell in love and decided to get married um, in 2017. Um, They were able to get a marriage license out of Perry County and um, they were able to do that uh, uh, in reliance on the IDs that they presented. Alex presented his, which was an ID from the Guatemalan consulate. 
Um, Perry County didn't perform marriage ceremonies, though. And in Pennsylvania, in order to formalize your marriage under the law, you do have to have a, a solemnization, a ceremony. So um, they went to Judge Beckley's courthouse in Cumberland County, um, knowing that, that they do perform ceremonies. But when they showed up, you know, instead of having the ceremony they expected, you know, all, all kinds of other things happened that were really distressing for the both of them. A court officer at Judge Beckley's direction told Alex that he wasn't free to go, um, that the judge questioned whether he was lawfully in the U.S. Um, They asked Alex if he had documents to prove that he was. He um, explained that he was. Krisha uh, rushed home to look for documents that might prove that. Alex called a social worker who had uh, documents that might prove that, uh, to fax those documents over. Judge Beckley ignored Alex's own answers about his status, and ICE officers arrived at the courthouse. This was super distressing for Alex and Krisha because they were afraid that, you know, worst case scenario, Alex could be detained, maybe even deported. When the ICE officers showed up, they scanned Alex's fingerprint with a mobile device, and they were able to confirm that what Alex had told um, the judge all along was true, uh, that he's a lawful permanent resident. And then, you know, Alex and Krisha, because they had paid the fee for their ceremony and because a few relatives of Alex's had traveled from New Jersey to attend it, you know, they decided to go forward with the ceremony that day awkwardly, but it's not what they had envisioned for themselves, as you can imagine. Yeah. And there had been stories for years of local and state officials taking it upon themselves to enforce federal immigration laws. What is our legal claim here? Why does Alex have grounds for bringing the lawsuit against Judge Beckley and the court officer? Well, so in our lawsuit, um, we are arguing that Alex's Fourth Amendment right uh, under the federal constitution to be free from an unreasonable seizure uh, was violated by Judge Beckley and the court officer because by detaining him without any proper legal cause, they, they violated uh, that right. Their detention was unreasonable in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um, they also, well, Judge Beckley also interfered with Alex's fundamental right under the Constitution to marry by um, interrupting the process with these inquiries about his status, the detention, calling ICE to come, and so on. And then also the actions of of Judge Beckley taken together with um, the obligations of the judicial districts of which she is a part violate um, federal statutory civil rights law. So Judge Beckley is a magisterial district judge, and she is one of the defendants in this case. Judges often claim that they're protected from lawsuits by something called judicial immunity. Why doesn't that apply here? Well, judicial immunity is a, a something that can apply to bar liability against a judge for an action done by the judge in her official capacity, and typically that means uh, doing something that only a judge can do. 
Performing a marriage ceremony doesn't uh, meet that standard. Uh, in fact, almost any civilian can uh, be authorized to perform a marriage ceremony just by completing a simple online application process. So our position is that when she was conducting the ceremony, she was performing a non-judicial function and judicial immunity doesn't uh, apply. So let's pivot and talk about another agency trying to enforce federal immigration law, the Pennsylvania State Police. Uh, Desi Burnett and I have talked about it. She's on this episode of the podcast. I want to get your perspective as well as a lawyer. Um, The state police have a new policy that puts some restrictions on what troopers cannot do in questioning people about immigration and cooperating with federal immigration authorities. We at ACLU of Pennsylvania have been saying that that new policy is not likely to stop profiling by troopers. From your view, why is that? I think generally, from from my view, there are four major and very concerning problems with this policy. For one thing, it explicitly allows individual troopers to question someone that they've stopped about their immigration status if the trooper has reason to believe that that person has, quote unquote, violated the law. That quote-unquote violated the law language is so broad and so vague that any trooper could understand it to mean that if they reasonably believe that someone they've stopped has violated a traffic law or has violated federal civil immigration law, that it is okay and permissible under this policy for them to question that person about their immigration status. That is hugely concerning. Second, uh, the policy explicitly allows uh, individual troopers to call ICE and share with ICE information that they've learned about someone during an encounter, including details like their name, their address, uh, if they learn where this person was born, that. If they learn this person's immigration status, that. They can uh, describe to ICE their view of what this person's ethnicity is, etc. And so this blanket sort of Uh, discretion under the policy for uh, troopers to contact ICE and share all kinds of information, that's also hugely concerning. Third, the policy actually requires troopers to notify ICE whenever uh, the state police incarcerate someone, put someone in custody. That's also hugely concerning. It's not something that um, the law otherwise requires. So the fact that this policy is requiring it is a big problem. Um, And then fourth, the policy offers zero guidance to troopers about what are permissible forms of identification uh, that a trooper can or should accept when the trooper permissibly needs to identify somebody. So this is a huge problem because if the trooper is uh, has stopped someone who um, presents a foreign ID, it's unclear under this policy whether that ID will be considered acceptable uh, to prove that person's identity. And there are other uh, consequences that the policy provides for that are concerning um, when someone isn't able to present quote-unquote acceptable ID, including having um, their biometrics taken. So that's another um, very, very concerning part of this policy. Uh, From our perspective, the policy is riddled with problems. Well, when you get down to it, local and state law enforcement really shouldn't even need a policy to restrict them from enforcing immigration. They're not trained for it. Um, No law enforcement agency in Pennsylvania participates in the federal government's 287G program, 
which is a program that trains local police on immigration enforcement. Um, can you explain in a little more detail what 287G is and talk about the limitations on local police in the area of immigration law? Sure. So um, 287G is a nickname for a provision of the Federal Immigration and Nationality Act that sets out a detailed scheme um, under which local law enforcement can enter into a formal written agreement with ICE under which designated local officers um, are delegated formal authority to act like immigration agents on the ground. Um, And that scheme requires, in addition to the written agreement, that ICE provide training and oversight of those troopers who are designated and who are delegated that authority. Unfortunately, History shows that even those local law enforcement agencies around the country that have entered into these formal agreements, that these formal agreements generally in practice tend to go horribly wrong. Um, uh, The the training and oversight that the statutory scheme 287G uh, specifies uh, in practice proves very, very deficient. And what we've seen is that these agreements tend to open the floodgates for very, very rampant, uh, aggressive racial profiling and rights violations. And so the most extreme example of that probably is Maricopa County, Arizona, um, and the legal battles that that county got embroiled in because of um, the racial profiling and the sort of floodgates problem that I described, it cost that county in excess of $54 million. So it's no joke kind of what uh, bad outcomes can flow even when a local law enforcement agency enters into one of those formal agreements. Well, Golnaz, I suspect this won't be the last time we're talking about uh, either immigration or Alex Parker's case or the state police. I imagine this conversation is going to keep going, but thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you to both Golnaz Vakimi and Desi Burnett for their time, and especially for everything they do to support immigrant communities. Learn more about Milpa at milpafamilia.org. In the show notes, we'll also include links to the ProPublica Philadelphia Inquirer piece on the state police and to the Scheller Center report on ICE enforcement in courthouses. If you appreciate what you hear about the work of the ACLU of Pennsylvania on this podcast, you should be a member. This work doesn't happen without our members, and we share our donations with our national office, so you'll be part of a nationwide organization of nearly 2 million people strong dedicated to defending and advancing civil liberties. Find information about becoming a member at aclupa.org join. That brings us to the end of episode 20. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, the writer, director, and host of this podcast. Until next time, be free. Be free.